Turn with me over to the book of Philippi. Book of Philippi. Book of Philippians. It's been a long 41. <laughs> the title of the message is Forward Confidence. Forward Confidence. Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Will you please stand as we read the word? Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Paul is writing and he says, I thank my God in all of my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, verse 6, for I have, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Lord, help us as we study your word and help us to live more like Jesus today than we did yesterday in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The church at Philippi was Paul's, Paul's favorite church. And, and, and you, never, you never want to say as a parent, you've got a favorite child. It's not a good idea. Um, but in your brain. <laughs> you love all your children the same. If you don't, something's wrong with you. All of them you need to love the same with unconditional love. And love that is tailor-made. It should not be off the rack. It ought to be catered just for them and their needs. But there's some that kind of obey you more. <laughs> that make you happier more. That don't, that don't suck their teeth when you ask them to take out the trash. <laughs> you just tend to maybe like them more. This was Paul's ecclesiastical child that he liked more. Philippi was his favorite. Why? Because they did things that other congregations didn't. And there was something about the birthing of the church that really made him endeared to the congregation and made the congregation endeared to him in a special way. You'll find the birthing of the church in Acts chapter 16. The apostle has a vision as he's trying to go to, to Asia. God says, don't go Go to Macedonia. A vision, a man says, come and help us. And that was his cue to go to Europe. He goes and he finds a woman named Lydia at the, at the water place and, and she gets right with God and, and she asks him to stay. And so the team stays at her house. She was a maker of fine linen, usually royal purple. And so she was very wealthy and had the opportunity to provide. And then the next day, Paul and Silas go to a place of prayer. And as they're walking, there is this little servant girl who sees them. And she's inspired by a demonic spirit. And there is a man who is her handler. And because she seems to be inspired, she seems to make him some money. A fortune teller. 1-800-PSYCHIC. <laughs> she sees Paul and Silas and she starts saying, servants of the most high God who are teaching you the way of salvation. But she wasn't saying it by way of agreement. She was saying it in a mocking way. Day after day, as Paul was going down to prayer, this girl would see him and say the same thing. At one point, it literally says Paul got annoyed. He looked at the spirit in the, in the girl and said, come out. And the spirit came out of the girl. You would think people would be happy. But the man who was her handler was making money on this girl. And he said, you just took away my, my golden goose. 
He went to the magistrates and had Paul and Silas thrown in prison. There they are, not just in prison prison, but in the dungeon prison, in the hole, in the prison on the inside of the prison. And not only were they in the hole, the prison on the inside of the prison, they were, they were shackled up to the wall while they were in prison. It was a horrible situation, all for seeing a little girl get free. Complaint, you would think, would come from that place. Lord, all we're doing is trying to help folk. I can't believe we found ourselves in this situation. My goodness, we got that girl free and we wound up bound. That doesn't make any sense. Lord, get us out of here, please. This, this is wrong. Let us get out. We'd be much more effective if we were out there preaching the gospel than in here. We're making no difference. That would be the normal way that many Christians, none of you in here, would respond. <laughs> Complaint, wondering why, asking God all the time why. I know we want to know, but 90% of the time you're not going to find out, so don't ask. What you need to do is say how. How am I going to get through this in a way that glorifies you and makes me better? How are people going to understand better about you through my going through? How in the world is this going to work out for your honor? Not why is this happening to me? And you, please hear me. If you ask that question, you might get an answer you don't like. Because we think we're so good it shouldn't. We think we're wonderful, so bad stuff ought not happen to us. What if you look in the mirror that happens to be full of Scripture and you begin to see stuff you didn't know you were doing wrong? In other words, God begins to tell you why these things are happening. You're not as good as you think, and you don't know how much I've withheld in terms of judgment on your life. Don't ask why. How? Paul and Silas were in prison, shackled up against the wall, things on their hands, wrists, and their feet. And in the middle of the night, a sound comes from the place where they were that nobody has ever heard before, praise and worship. They were singing hymns of praise to God in the middle of the night while they were in pain, and they had wounds because it says later that when the, when, the, when the warden saw what they were doing and got, got right with God, it says he bandaged and cared for their wounds. They were beaten up. And yet in the midst of their pain and rejection, they were praising him. As they praised, it says that an earthquake happened. Now this is the kind of earthquake that doesn't happen. Because the earthquake happened and the walls didn't fall down. The ceiling didn't collapse. The only thing that happened was all the prison doors opened. That's a weird earthquake. You talk about targeted. I mean, not just Paul's prison door. Every prisoner in the jail had their prison door opened. You have no idea what your praise will do. It won't just open your cell, make you free. Your praise will help other people get free. And I'm not talking about the kind of praise that anybody can give. When Publishers Clearinghouse shows up at your house, it says $5,000 a week for life. <laughs> anybody, listen, an atheist can praise him then. 
I'm talking about the kind of praise when you don't think he deserves it or you don't want to give it. That's what opens up stuff that's previously locked. All the prison doors opened. The warden feels the shaking. And he comes to the prison and he opens his door and he looks in. He sees all the prison doors open. And he realizes when a prisoner has an opportunity to, to bounce, he's going to bounce. And so he takes a knife and, and was going to kill himself. Why? Because the penalty for a Roman soldier to lose a prisoner was dying at a stake by being burned with your own clothes. He said, I don't want to go through that. I know every prisoner's gone, so I'm just going to kill myself. And Paul, it says, shouted loudly, loudly from his prison cell. Don't do it. We are all here. What happens when, like, God answers your prayer and frees you? Can you stay? When he opens your prison door, are you more concerned about the other people who are still bound? Or are you just happy to get out? Releases you from your circumstances. And then you're able to say, Lord, you helped me. But all those other people, take care of him, Jesus. Help him, Jesus. Paul was a different kind of Christian. He wasn't just looking for his own deliverance. He was prioritizing everybody else's. And so when his prison door fell open, he realized this. Oh, all these other prisoners can come and do a Bible study with me now. They couldn't if my door was closed, but now my door's open so they can come in my room. And that's exactly what happened. People were getting saved. The, the warden looks at Paul and he sees all these prisoners here in the gospel. And literally the warden is so impacted by nobody having escaped. He says, what do, I, what do I need to do to be saved? Because I've never seen anything like this in my life. He gets saved. And then he says, listen, I got a family. It's in the middle of the night. I got a family. Paul and Silas, can I take you to my house? And you minister to all my people, my, my wife, my kids, all the servants. Can, can you come with? So Paul and Silas go to his house. And it says everybody that night gets saved. They get baptized a horse. Revival's happening for this warden. It's really cool. Now, all of that is amazing. But what's really amazing is that you jump down to the very next passage after everybody gets saved. And it says, in the morning, the magistrates came to the prison and told Paul and Silas they could leave. Now, that's a good thing. But something happened in the middle of the night whereby... The warden had a conversation with Paul and Silas, and we don't have the conversation, but it had to go something like this. I want to thank you so much for all you've done for me. I, I'm just blown away how you've helped my family. and You, you could have left, and I would have died. And you stayed because you loved me. You didn't want to see me suffer. Man, but, 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 I, but, but I can I ask him one, one little favor? Can we go back to jail? Because, like, if you don't go back to jail, I die. Paul and Silas, absolutely. I'll gladly be bound for your freedom. Paul was a different kind of Christian. You understand why now the church at Philippi 
had a, had a special place in Paul's heart? Because Paul had a special place in the people's heart. Every time that jailer thought about Paul, he thought, that dude, he saved my life. He saved my life. He saved my family. I'll do anything for him. Whatever you need, whenever you need it, I'm your boy. It says that this church, Philippi, was different than all the others. And that from the first day in this passage, it says, from the first day that they received the gospel, they participated until now. First day was somewhere around 49 AD. Until now, when Paul was writing the letter to the Philippians, 62, 13 years of nonstop participation in the gospel. And Paul writes about the church at Philippi to the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth had some money, and they had set aside some money for Paul's ministry. Good. They had, they had make sure, make, made sure that it was over here and not to be used for something else, but for some reason, Paul hadn't gotten it. He was sending Titus to pick it up, and he was making sure, I hope it's all there. You all haven't been very ardent about making sure that the stuff you set aside for me was was really given to me. I hope it hasn't been touched by covetousness. Paul was really concerned. And then he uses the church at Philippi as a rebuke and correction to the church at Corinth, at Corinth saying, you know the church at Philippi? They, uh, out, of their, out of their deep poverty and overwhelming affliction, gave out of what they had to supply my needs. He said, I don't want them to shame you. This church at Philippi was stunning. They never stopped contributing for the progress of the gospel. Therefore, Paul says this, I've only got really good memories about you. Everybody has memories about everybody they know, but very few of them are good. Paul says, I only have good memories about you, even though his trials were extremely difficult. I mean, being thrown in jail and beaten. Do you know out of the 24 to 26 years of ministry that we have recorded of Paul, he was in prison for about four of them. That's like 15% of the time the man was behind bars. That's not the kind of life most ministers are thinking they're going to lead. They're thinking they're going to ministry and birth a church and hope it changes the community. This man was constantly in danger beaten day and night out in the sea without food, without clothing, betrayed by brethren. He had more difficulties in 26 years than most people have in three lifetimes. And yet he was always joyful. But he found somebody who understood him, somebody who wanted to partner with him in the church at Philippi that was different than every other church he birthed. And, and, and he was deeply appreciative of who they were. And everything they did provided him with very good memories. You congregation are not dissimilar. Y'all make me happy. There are so many people who have helped to provide and participated in the gospel from the day they arrived till now. Pastor Mark Hawk, who was the senior pastor of this house, he was the founding pastor. I came here in 1982 to participate with him in helping to see the city served. I was a campus minister at Howard University, not paid by the university, just showing up, trying to figure out how to win, win students for Jesus, doing the unusual thing, standing out in the middle of the campus and just preaching the gospel to anybody who would walk by. I wasn't caustic. I wasn't mean. I was conversational just like this. And people would stop, 
we'd have conversations and I'd lead them to Jesus. Happened every week like that, every week. Mark Hawk was my first pastor and he taught me what it was like to worship. I didn't really understand. He was a worshiper. He was also very prophetic in how he heard from God in the midst of worship and prayer. He taught me what it meant to do a church service. I didn't know how to do one very well. Why in the world do we clap every time we talk about doing the, the offering, taking it, receiving it? Why do we do that? Because he taught me when you clap, it says in Corinthians that God loves a cheerful giver. What you're doing is militating against the selfishness that would want to rob people of the opportunity to distribute. You're telling your soul to rejoice in the moment rather than, eh. Why we do the way we do worship and song. It's all from what my pastor taught me. From the first day until now, he's in this place. Daryl Green, famous guy in the city. Y'all know a little bit about him. Played football for the Washington Redskins for 20 years. Best buddy. He and I got together in 1983 when he was a rookie. He came to minister to Howard University's football team because I was the chaplain at Howard University at the time of the football team. I needed somebody from the Redskins world to come and give a testimony. I knew the chaplain for the team of the Redskins. He sent Daryl over. Daryl was a rookie. Heard his testimony. I said, dude, can we get together? Never happened in 83. Brought him back in the spring ball in 84. Dude, can we get together? Never happened. Got him in 84 fall. Dude, can we get together? Never happened. Summertime around 85, he was beginning to say, I need some help in my life. And he asked me to come over to his home twice a week at 6 a.m., I lived in Temple Hills. He lived in Centerville. <laughs> yeah, y'all get it now. <laughs> I still had to do my devotionals and everything else, so I had to get up at like 3.30 or 4 to get everything done, get on the road by 5 to be at his house by 6. No complaint. But we'd spend an hour in prayer before he got to work. That man was so turned on for God that from the first day he came into our church till now, he's been a participant in the gospel. He did what most ball players have never done. We met in on Capitol Hill Holiday Inn, right on Capitol Hill, a, a hotel that was kind to us sometimes. <laughs> but that was our home for about four years. Um, and he decided that he was going to come to church on a Sunday when they had a game. They stayed at a hotel, the Marriott, near the Dulles Airport. That's where they would stay the night before the game. And then they would drive into RFK to play the next morning. On Saturday night, he stayed there, and he said, I'm coming to church tomorrow. I said, dude, you got a 1 o'clock game. I want to, we, we meet at 9. You going to make that work? He said, I'm coming to church. He showed up at 9 and stayed. Our services in were about two hours. <laughs> he stayed till about 10, whereby he needed to be at the stadium at 10 to do all the stuff that they do pregame. So he stayed longer than he should have, but he wanted to worship before he got on the field. That's the kind of people who have laid the foundation for what you're enjoying now. I am so grateful for those kind of people who have participated from the first day they got there until now. And I want you to feel the sense of gratefulness that you need to have for all those people you don't even know, that the ones that you do know, the ones that are helping, now that you can see and, and are building things for your children to participate in and Grace Kids, what a great program we've got running over there. Just fabulous.
our lift program for our junior high and senior high. I, I can't talk about it too much because my, my baby boy's running it, but he's doing great. He's doing great. Your kids, your kids are being served really well. A.J. McGraw, from the first day. From the first day he got here until now, he's given his heart and life to this house. Even when he wasn't employed, he'd work 20, 30 hours here. Being a servant with our youth, helping out with marriage ministry. It's like he was our employee, just working for free. He and his wife are gems. My point is people have done some things to lay the foundation that allow you to feel comfortable and helped. Equipped to do more than you ever thought possible. I want you to feel what Paul felt. The result was thanksgiving and constant prayer. I can't stop talking to God about how great you are. And every time I do it, I get overjoyed with thanksgiving. That ought to be your response. Thanking him every day. That doesn't mean that you don't say, Lord, help him fix that too. There's not a congregation that doesn't have problems. And we will sit in the first chair of that. We have issues. But help me. If you can find a congregation that doesn't have problems, please don't join it. Because you will mess it up. I know we have issues, but that's because we're human and we were born of Adam and Eve. But every time we see them, we're trying to fix them. We don't let them just continue. We repent. We tell folks we're sorry if we did something wrong. We make it right as best we know how. We may not be everything you want us to be but we're yours right now. And I'm begging you to have the attitude that Paul had about the church at Philippi. Gratefulness and thanksgiving. Because that congregation, as I close, participated from the first day until 62, 49 to 62, Paul concluded with this. He says, for I am confident that he who began a good work in you, he who started something, spectacular will complete it he will not stop midstream he will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus now that promise is for everybody who is a believer what God starts his aim is to always finish we can sometimes get in the way and cause there to be a delay because of our disobedience because of our inability to answer our lack of compliance to his will. But God's intent is to complete what he started. So everybody has that promise. But Paul was not saying that this is a promise only for you. He was saying this, I have confidence. It's almost as if the apostle had turned into a prophet for just a minute. This one, this apostle, who had been to heaven, the third heaven, and had gotten information that nobody else had ever gotten about how important it was to reach not just the seed of Abraham, but the seed of Adam. Us 
who were not Jewish. The reason we are here is because of Paul's revelation. Otherwise, Peter would have gone on and simply won Jewish people and it would have perpetuated like that. Nothing wrong with winning Jewish people. Happy about it. But the gospel was to be for the nations. And the only one who really got the information that made a difference. Peter got the information, but it didn't make much difference. When that sheik came out of heaven when he was at Simon's house there in Joppa, he understood that he was supposed to reach Gentile people. But he never constructed an architectural strategy that allowed his, his church in Jerusalem to do so. Nothing happened systemically. He went to Cornelius' Cornelius's house and saw some people won. But nothing again we have recorded ever happened. With Paul, when he got his revelation from heaven, he said, I'm going to Antioch. And I'm going to figure out this thing with Barnabas about what it looks like to build a multi-ethnic world. And in Antioch, you had a different kind of believer there. They weren't Jewish. The dude named Lucius, he had to be black. <laughs> Name like Lucius? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. See, a white guy can't say that. I can get away with it. It may not be right, but I can get away with it. You look at the list of people who were in Antioch, and they were from all over the world. You had a guy who grew up Herod's friend. He wasn't Jewish. Herod wasn't Jewish. You had Lucius. You had Simon. Of Simon, we believe, was the guy who actually carried Christ's cross, and he was a black man. The church at Antioch was just different. And Paul began to see that which he had seen in heaven and said, whoa, it can happen here. And he took that little bit of seed, that little leaven, and took it wherever he went, Jew and Gentile together. This man who had the architectural plan to help win the world, <laughs> this man who cared about Christ's mission, looked at the church of Philippi and said, you are the... You're the group of people that make me most happy. And when he speaks, there's something of a weight behind what he says when he says, I am confident about a spiritual assertion. It's like he's prophesying. There's no greater voice in the church than this man right here. And it doesn't mean what he said, as I said before. It does not mean that what he said about the church of Philippi can't be applied to every place else. He just said it to Philippi with the information and the exclamation that I have confidence in this. It's just not an encouragement. I know what God has said from heaven, that he who began a good work in you, Philippi, will finish it until the day of Christ Jesus. In the same way, you who have participated in the gospel from the first day you got here until now, I got confidence that he who began whatever he began in you is going to complete it. He's going to complete it. And as I close, if there is any, if there is any example about the possibility of God doing that in the unlikely in the people that it doesn't look like should happen to, it's me. Nobody thought I'd ever be doing this. Least of all, me. And when my sister saw me preach for the first time, she came when we were over, we used our Grace Kids as our sanctuary back nine years ago. She came and heard me preach. 
And, and she sat in the front row and she went, Because she knew Brett. And whatever she was hearing and seeing wasn't Brett. He who began something to me, and everybody thought I was crazy, thought I was a, in a cult because I was so on fire for Jesus. He'll amount to nothing, my daddy said. I shouldn't be here. But I participated in the gospel. And somebody told me, Brett, because you're doing this, he's going to bypass all of your flaws. He's going to do stuff in spite of you. And he's going to finish what he started in you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your goodness and grace. I thank you for the people who have come alongside to assist us in, in our progress. Bless them. Would you, Lord, open the minds of the people here today so that they might, in the next decade, be those of whom it can be said they participated in the gospel from the first day they got here until now. Let that be people's testimony, I pray.